It's good to be here this morning. I'm glad I get to share with you. I'm glad my wife brought me tea as well. Been fighting being sick for the last uh, last week, and it seems like I've hit a lull. So this should be good. But just to to kick things off, to preface where I'm going to go this morning, um, about a week and a half ago, a um, I guess you could say a dear theologian, writer, thinker that meant just had a huge impact in my life passed away. His name was Brendan Manning. And if any of you have read, he's, he's written many books, but some of, um, or at least one of my favorites is the Ragamuffin Gospel. If you've never read it, I strongly encourage you to read it. It is, I remember I read it at 17 years old and, and literally just wanted to write my life off and, and go serve poor people forever. And uh, so he's a very impactful individual. And he had numerous quotes uh, that people had, had written down and analyzed for, for him over the years. And one of his more famous, I'm going to read to you this morning. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him with their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Now, whether or not you land on that same page with with Mr. Manning or not, uh, that being that Christians are sort of the single active cause of of atheism in the world, it's not as much of the thrust that I'm hoping for this morning as in this. And something I think we can all agree. The human capital in the lifestyle and active witness of the gospel is something that is incredibly underutilized. I think we can all land on that. And that how we live in a manner that conducts the gospel and preaches the gospel is something that we don't tap into nearly enough. Myself as much as any of you. And I think that this, uh, this will give the, the teeth, if you will. This is the main, or one of the main points of which the text that we'll be talking about uh, this morning. So let's go there, if you wouldn't mind. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, look in the pew back in front of you. There should be one there. You would be on page 1143. Uh, and also, if you came and you don't own a Bible, and let's say by the end of this you want one, please let one of our ushers know or one of our deacons know, and we'd be glad to make sure you left with one. And I just ask that when you do get there, if you wouldn't mind, this morning, incline your hearts and your minds to what's being said here. Get involved in the story. Hear it. Let it wash over you. Let it not be something that we just passively read as part of our service, but get inside. I'll start in verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts and known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for grace. Thank you for your son, Jesus. We ask three things. Save your children, instruct believers, and cause us to follow you more closely this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, let's see if I can give some traction here before we jump in. Um, I'm, I'm a relatively young guy. My students would totally disagree. 
But I'm 30 years old, and I like to draw back with any type of illustration to my adolescence. And I think that the reason for that is I did so many stupid things at such a young age. I mean, just compact, just a few years, I did anything dumb that I could do in that amount of time. And I feel as though now I have sermon illustrations for years to come. So I feel like everybody can agree with this. Everyone, all of you, at some point have walked into your kitchen, opened up your fridge, not sure what you wanted to eat or drink, and just sort of stood there for a minute, hoping that something would speak to you, something would pop out. And in my particular story, I remember doing this one day, specifically at a young age, where I saw, crept way in the back, hidden behind everything, was a, you know, a plastic half jug of chocolate milk, which to a chubby young man, there is no greater thing on earth. And so I began to sort of weed through and pull, you know, other sides and condiments and all things that were in front of it out to make this just glorious pathway to bring it forth. But I'm not dumb. Because you know rather, rather quickly that once you get it there, there's a reason why there's like seven layers of food before it. It's been back there a while. So your knee-jerk is to at least acknowledge that there is an expiration date and, and take a look. Now, in this instance, it had passed its expiration date. And everybody begins to wrestle with this conviction in you where you ask two questions. Is it the type of past the expiration date where it just can't be sold at Safeway anymore? Or is it the type of expiration date passing where I'll go to the hospital if I consume it? And then somewhere in between that we gamble and we go for it. Now, most people do this. You do the smell check. And we think to ourselves, as long as we pop the cap and smell just that first whiff, if it's okay, I'm probably all right to continue. So I did that first smell, wonderful, smelled like chocolate milk like it's supposed to. And instead of being intelligent and taking a sip as a young man, I just felt like I had to consume half of it in one gulp. And if I could get past the spicy, burning, oily discharge that, that ran down my throat, if that wasn't enough, the texture of sort of this cross between, you know, unstirred yogurt and cottage cheese, it's, it's enough to prove that it's no longer chocolate milk. So you walk out of that scenario with two things cemented in your person. Two absolute truths, rock solid. That this is no longer milk and that the expiration date was true. Okay? And then second, it gives you a human response where you say, for at least the next six months, I'm not touching any dairy products. So two things happen as a result of that transformation. We realize immediately that this was an attempt from Satan to off us all. And I believe this is somewhat what Paul's dealing with in this text. See, Paul spends a ridiculous amount of time in all of his letters defending himself. I mean, it's rather absurd because he contributes an awful lot of great things. But he warns quite often that there are false teachers or false apostles, people coming into the church that claim not only that his stature is inadequate, that they don't think that he is uh, having the apostolic authority that he claims because he wasn't really there with Jesus. And by what standard do we hold his, ultimately, his message to the fire? So I would see that Paul would say it this way. Transform lives, validate the gospel, and embolden the church. Now before we really jump into the text, I just have one, one request. Get inside the story. When we read this, don't, don't just switch on to autopilot and just move throughout the service. I mean, 
Put yourself in the story. Get in there. Feel it. Breathe it. Touch it with your fingers. Get involved. Let this thing resonate in your soul. Because I believe this is of huge importance to us for today. Huge importance. Transformed lives validate the gospel and embolden the church. Let's go to work. Starting verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to or from you? So, just to give a little bit of history, letters of recommendation were not abnormal. Um, Romans 16, Paul commends Phoebe to the Roman church. It's, it's like, it's nothing different than what you and I have. Job application, we want letters of reference or at least phone numbers of reference at the bottom. They want someone to be able to speak on your behalf and say that you accomplished something that you're claiming and or you have some type of decent character. And Paul is not saying that this is an absurd request. He is just reframing their question, which he does quite often. They're asking him, the church that he planted, mind you, that he'd been with, that he'd wrestled with, that he'd struggled with. He'd been with them. He'd lived with them. He sought not to get paid by them. He worked hard among them. He got to know them well. He dealt with some, you read 1 Corinthians, he dealt with some things. And for them to now come to him and say, well, you know, we just just validate what you're doing. Give us something. Give us something to feel like you're you're really about what you say you are, that your message is really as powerful as you say that it is, that, that you have the authority to make the claims that you're making. And Paul's using a rhetorical device, like I said, to reframe the question, because he isn't against accomplishments, he isn't against letters of recommendation, as long as they do not become our standard for God's involvement. Wrap your heads around this for a sec. As long as they don't become the standard by which we weigh out God's involvement in life and ministry. So let me give you just a quick illustration. So I'm a nerd, and I read nerdy Christian material written by seemingly nerdy Christian authors. And so when I go to shop books, there's three things that I look for. And maybe you can understand this and are there with me. It has to automatically have a catchy title. I cannot get past lame titles of books. Like if you didn't seem to put a ton of creativity and effort in the title, I feel as though I'm not going to enjoy what you wrote for the next 280 pages. So it has to have a catchy title. Second to that, I need to be able to flip that book over and see your little, you know, glamour shot photo with the bio at the bottom. And I need to like where you went to school. I need to feel like I know the seminary, like I'm confident that whoever, you know, passed you out into the world knew you and trained you well. And then ultimately, I want to see that that consistent list of nerdy rock star Christians giving you the thumbs up that this is somehow the book that's going to change Christianity in the world for 2013. So I need these letters of recommendation to validate even a book purchase. I want to know that you've done something. I want to know that important people like you. And we do this all the time. We do it with everything. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. However, when it comes to our validation for ministry success, nay, the power and ability of the gospel, there's something missing. And so Paul, I believe, asks this question instead. Is ministry success based purely on track record and ability or by the power of the, bo- uh, power of the gospel? And if so, how can we know? So point number one, if you guys like to take notes, we're going to split these into two parts. We're going to talk about validation, the human witness. Validation, the human witness. You yourselves are our letter. 
written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not in ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Seemingly poetic, right? Essentially, he's saying this, you're it. You're it. I don't want any letters to come in. I want everyone to see you. See, Corinth was sort of a nasty city. And it was well known in its province area. In fact, there's, uh, there's like Greek slang that they used that had the name of, of Corinth in it that they would utilize when explaining someone who solicited and slept with a prostitute. That's how the city was known. So his perspective is, if people see you converted, it's going to have an awful lot of weight behind it. So you're a living letter. Everyone can read you. And they're obligated by virtue of reading and seeing you to acknowledge the handwriting and authorship. Essentially what he's saying is, this is not something that I can take credit for. None of them have been. I can't have a letter coming saying that I planted churches by my own power, that thousands and thousands were saved by my own uh, eloquent speech and persuasion. He's like, I can't say that. It wouldn't be honest. You are the product of something else. I love this right here. 1 Corinthians 2. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come to you with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power. Why? Why did I do that? Verse 5, so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So that at your presentation at faithful walking believers, the world, everyone around you would know, well, Paul didn't do that. I mean, Paul just came and said, I came to you with what's of first importance. That Christ died according to this crucified, according to the scriptures, died and buried according to the scriptures, raised to life on the third day according to the scriptures. This message in and of itself, the bare bones of the gospel, transformed you. I came to you in weakness so that I would be of less value and the gospel would be given tons. That when you would be converted, I would have reason to boast because the gospel is true and it works. Think about it. All of you sitting in this room, if you confess Jesus as Lord, you got here somehow. Through someone's lips, through some sort of reading, through some sort of preaching, you heard the gospel. You heard these three very interesting, yet albeit important points. He was crucified, dead, and raised to life. And somehow benevolently by faith that is attracted to and effectual for you and I. And if you're in here this morning and that's you, you are validating that this gospel message has the ability to change everything. It validates that the gospel message is the most prominent and powerful word and message ever to be spoken. It validates that I'm not able, no matter how credible I am, no matter how many degrees I am, no matter if I'm anywhere near as smart as the gracious pastors and leaders we've been given here, I'm not able, they're not able to accommodate this room full of people. We can't make this. You are the product, the handiwork, the written love letter of God through Christ Jesus. It's a remarkable thing and something that we seek to boast in. John Gill says it this way. 
This is just cool. Christ is the author and dictator. Yes, he himself, the very matter, sum, substance, and subject of the letter. He is formed in the hearts of his people at conversion. His image is stamped on them. His grace is implanted. His word, his gospel dwells richly. His laws and ordinances are written there. He is also the exemplar. Believers are but copies of him. And in grace and duty and sufferings and likeness of his death and resurrection, we are the manifested declared reality to be so. This is the evidence of the gospel. That by the impresses of Christ upon them, by the fairness of the copy, by the style and language of the letter, by their likeness to Christ, they are, not having, they are having not only form, but the power of godliness, and ultimately, by their lives and conversations, he will be made known. You sitting in this room, if confessed Jesus is true, filled with the Holy Spirit, born again, transformed, no longer being that which you once were, but now being a new thing. Look, behold, a new thing comes forth. You are like this because of God. You are like this through grace. You've been imprinted and you've been held and kept together by the power of the Spirit. And you, in a living testimony, declare that what some would view to be an archaic message has still got a whole lot of life in it. Now, what does that knowledge do for us? What does that truth do? What does it do for the body of Christ? What does it do in our daily lives? Second point, boldness, the human response. Boldness is the human response. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So it builds confidence. When I spend time with 30 to 40 individuals that I've known now for coming up on the beginning of my third year here, and I've watched some of them test me beyond measure. I have some of them who have given me more grief than my own children, and you know my kids, that's a lot. And I've watched a development take place. I've watched drug addiction, and I've watched freedom from it. I've watched porn addiction, and I've watched freedom from it. I've watched students who have no identity and struggle inwardly and outwardly to fit in and to focus and to pour themselves out in any capacity benevolent for anyone. And I've watched freedom come from it. I've watched struggle with vision and plans and desire to go to college or to go into the mission field or to go to work or any of those things. Figuring out within this tumultuous cycle, what will we do? Who will we be? And I've watched freedom from it. I've seen God move miraculously and I've been emboldened in my calling here and my vocation here to press on based almost solely on when I look at them, I see one thing. The gospel's true. I preach a message of power, not because I'm wise or have ability, but because God is alive and at work in his people. And this builds confidence. It builds a boasting. It builds fuel to continue to press us forth. Because we, like Paul, and the Corinthians for that matter, are thoroughly insufficient to accomplish anything. And this is something that we have to wrestle with, but ultimately come to an understanding. We are not able by ourselves to come about the work of the ministry, to bring about success. We are not able of ourselves for the conversion of sinners. No amount of altar calls in and of themselves save people. Nor faith or hope in God, even for ourselves. We can't make it happen. 
It's graciously happening to us through the gospel. Therefore, sorry, 1 Corinthians 1.7, Therefore, you do not lack in any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. As if it wasn't enough for him to save us. I mean, think about that. As if it wasn't enough to offer up his life. To take on humiliation and suffering for people that honestly didn't want him. To draw us back in love to himself. For us to go from enemies who were Ephesians 2.12, once far off, separated from the commonwealth. Now by 2.13, now by the blood of Christ, brought in, brought into fellowship and into community from enemies to friends. If that wasn't enough, we've been given every resource and every spiritual capability to accomplish these things through his power. So there's two things to resolve. Inasmuch as you take a gulp of disgusting milk and know that it is no longer the same as it was, you also resolve to do something about it. So there's a boldness that fuels us to be someone and something. And that we've been given every resource to accomplish whatever he brings our way. Our bio, our resume cannot sufficiently sustain effectiveness gospel witness because not everybody in this room is going to go to bible college not everybody in this room is going to spend any time in seminary not everybody in this room is going to get all of the training that is absolutely necessary to be you know a solid christian witness which i don't buy that at all but by grace you've been saved by grace you've been gifted everything that you could possibly need so that when the gospel does what it does best and that is save individuals and transform them from an old dead thing to a new living thing and then that excites you when you look around this room and you hear of stories and you hear of testimonies and you hear of witnesses of God's mighty hand working in people's lives you can then say okay i have a coworker i have a family member I have a next door neighbor. I have another student. And they need to hear this. And I'm confident in it because I see it constantly. It builds, it creates pressure and life. And God has made us proficient through and for the gospel for his glory. So I want to conclude with this. Take a second, consider the gospel this morning. That term can be abused horribly. Consider what you know to be the gospel. And if you don't know to be the gospel, it's this. That God loved humanity in a way we don't understand. He loved in a way that caused him to serve in an undeserving manner. To give up of himself temporarily. To come to us in our frailty. To exchange his life for ours. And then to show us how to live in a way that goes above and beyond the death that we're so accustomed to. God does this. Eagerly, as a jealous lover, considering us, constantly pursuing us, never leaving us, but seeking our best interest at all times. This is the gospel. And what adds to this, it's the cherry on top, the whipped cream, if you will, is that he loves us so much that he doesn't wait for you to find him, but he draws you to himself. He's constantly bringing you to him. He's constantly offering grace. He's constantly supporting this behavior by virtue of his love. Constantly. But consider it for yourself. When was the first time that you heard it that it changed you? Some of you in here may have heard it a million times. You've been in Sunday school since you were a little one. You may be now older and you've read tons of nerdy books like me. 
Consider that first time, that time when the truth of God weighed heavily over you and something happened. You were no longer chocolate milk. You were an enemy of God by Satan. But you were changed. You were transformed. You were made into something new. Ephesians 1.13, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You were involved into something amazing and great. And that involvement does have implications and requirements. It does. Because your very presence validates the gospel and emboldens both you and others to move. I think it's Matthew 15. I could be wrong. But neither do people with a light or a lamp put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. Speaking of Jesus, the gospel that you have, the good news that has been entrusted to you, you don't hide that, but you put it up so that it gives light and touches everyone and everything around you in the same way that you are a living letter and all men will read you. Put him out there. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You don't have to be a professional vocational minister. God has graciously placed you in other people's lives. He's empowered you by his spirit. He's called you and given you the most precious promises that are existing. Now what will you do with it? You sit in here living with the writing of the gospel on your heart and in your life. And your life has been changed. What is that changed life for? To pursue the salvation and benefit of other people. To redeem the city. To redeem your neighborhood. To redeem your school. See, I believe that God is really interested in something. And that is not just the forgiveness of sin. He's interested in utilizing who were once sinners, to change and transform the world, to redeem all of the brokenness, to move forward like a kingdom, advancing in every area that the shadow has touched. And how do we do that? We live as transformed, changed individuals and let the gospel be the words on our lips and the actions in our life so that the world will turn and glorify our Father. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for, um, God, I just thank you for the truth. I thank you for your presence. I thank you that you're with us. I thank you that we are not lacking anything, but that you have accomplished and will continue to all that you set out to in Christ Jesus. I thank you that the testimony of the saints, whether it's a crazy story or what seems to just be a normal church kid story, none of it matters because it's all reflective of the gospel is alive and powerful, and moving. Let our witness be exemplary. Let our lives be a bold explanation. May you be glorified forever in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys could stand with us, we're going to do one more song.
I told everyone this is going to be the best sermon I ever gave. So <laughs> there you have it. Um, a few things I want to remind you of. Save the date. In two weeks, we have our relationship weekend coming up with uh, uh, Friesens. Uh, many of you who are here, please invite people who weren't because uh, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Sunday school, we got all of that covered. Be more on that next week, but please save the date. Also wanted to let you know the, what we're doing with our summer schedule and our evening service. Uh, in, in seeing, uh, God has just brought a lot of people uh, to and through and, and even into the morning service through that. But where we are with the evening service is just we're able to keep it going and we really want to take it to the next level in pastoral care and discipleship and growth and development. And so we're going to take a, a summer hiatus to retool to really move this ahead much more. But during the summer, we have the Alpha Course, which will be starting um, a few weeks right after Confident Living on Wednesday evenings. And we're also going to be going large with Celebrate Recovery. And that would be most likely um, Saturday, but, but there'll be more information on that. And so these are two tremendous resources that we're really excited about and, and want to um, present and, and to lay those out there. So in about three weeks or so, we'll be winding down our evening service. So if... Uh, Get in any conversations, you know what to say. And that really is uh, in recognizing who, who God is bringing and, and how we can uh, best serve and, uh, and, and grow people strong in Him. Uh, this is really where, where we feel confident that God is um, always wanting us to go deeper. Um, also, compassion. We just sang it. Everyone needs compassion international in their life to be a part of. Um, here, here's the deal with, uh, with this. It is an opportunity, and, and we're inundated with these uh, on, on TV and, and, and the stuff we just throw out in snail mail and, and all of this. And this is one more plea, one more appeal. There's need. But this is it. If you have the ability, $38 a month, you need this. You need to be doing this as much as the people need uh, the physical resources. And so I would encourage each person here, go by the table. Uh, there, there's time. We have a cafe going, so we, we're letting you out early because I wasn't preaching. Um, we, we, and so you have extra time here to mill around. But I would encourage each person here, you don't have to sponsor a child. And you don't have to say, well, God hasn't called me to do this because we're not going there. But has God called you not to sponsor a child? If you're convinced that God has called you not to sponsor a child, you're in peace. Please go. If you don't have the financial resources, this is not what God is calling you to do right now. You've got other things, other priorities, but there's still ways to get involved, so you're not off the hook. Um, if you are able to do this and need and ability, there, there's a lot of gray area there. I promise you this, on your deathbed, you're not going to be going, gosh, man, I could have put that $38 to such better use. I, I really, uh, what I could have done with that, the lattes, the sports games, uh, you're not going to miss it. But the living letters and the people and all the lives that are influenced by them and so forth and so on, it's going to be worth it. Absolutely. So again, consider this. You can take a packet, bring it home, bring it back. There's one packet. If you lose it, this kid disappears. So this is serious stuff, okay? How Compassion works, they've got one packet for a kid. So Grab a packet, bring it home, pray about it. If God's telling you, hey, I've got other things for you, this isn't for you, if you hear that clearly, absolutely, and God, God can say that. 
Okay, this isn't a guilt thing or bait and switch. What has God called you to do? He's called all of us to be involved. He's called all of us to stretch. He's called all of us to be uncomfortable and and to give the bacon because of the value of the gospel and changed lives. Here's a tremendous opportunity, what we're doing in Africa, what we're doing with compassion. And again, our lives uh, translated into, into many. We need to do this for our growth. We need to do this for our obedience. We need to do this for the sake of the gospel and that the love of Christ would be made full. And so that we have the emotional wherewithal. Remember the video? Oh, we're going to make sure you have full belly so you make a good decision. So we have a Haiti cafe. Just just head out, head downstairs, follow um, the smell of um, uh, Asian uh, chicken extravaganza and whatnot. And uh, see you all down there. Go in peace to love and to be God's will. See you next week.